Before we uh, begin with Psalm 1, <clears throat> I wanted to say a little bit about the book of Psalms in general and uh, their special nature and purpose in Scripture. And I have uh, a couple of wonderful quotes from two quite different sources uh, to sort of set up this whole series <clears throat> on the Psalms. So the first quote is from the 17th century poet and preacher, English poet and preacher John Donne, who was dean of St. Paul's Cathedral in London, that is to say pastor of the cathedral congregation in the early 17th century. And he says this about the Psalms in one of his sermons, the Psalms are the manna of the church as manna tasted to every man like that that he liked best, so do the Psalms minister instruction and satisfaction to every man in every emergency and occasion. The whole book of Psalms is an ointment poured out upon all sorts of sores, a balm that searches all wounds. The other quotation comes uh, from more than a thousand uh, years earlier in the history of the church from St. Athanasius, who lived during the fourth century, a time of great upheaval in church history when the church was threatened very seriously by a heresy that denied the deity of Christ and the triune nature of God. And Athanasius was known as the hero who kind of stood against the when it seemed like the whole Christian world was going that way. Athanasius contra mundum, Athanasius against the world. He paid a price for it. But this is what he says about the Psalms in a letter that he wrote to a person named Marcellinus. The Psalter is like a picture, the book of Psalms, is like a picture in which you see yourself portrayed. Elsewhere in the Bible, you read the law, you listen to the prophets, you learn the doings of the kings and holy men, but in the salt, in the Psalms, you learn about yourself. You find depicted in it all the movements of your soul, all its changes, its ups and downs, its failures and recoveries. Moreover, whatever your particular need or trouble, from this same book, you can select a form of words to fit it so that you do not merely hear and then pass on, but learn the way to remedy your ill. Whether he has kept the law or broken it, it is his own doings, the psalmist describes. Be he faithful soul or sinner, each reads in them descriptions of himself. So this is a book that offers us words to say to God. It's often been said that in the rest of the Bible, God speaks to us in the Psalms, we speak to God. And whether it's praise or lament, whether it's thanksgiving or a cry for help, whether it's instruction that we ask for to show us the way, or whether it's tears of, of remorse for following the wrong way, the Psalms are for us. So let's listen to the first psalm now. Psalm 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, 
but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, who meditates on the law, on his law, day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, who yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor the sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Sandy. So someone, somewhere at some point in the history of Israel, uh, chose this psalm to be number one. Perhaps it was written for that express purpose, to head the Psalter. And uh, it's paired with Psalm 2 in a wonderful way. Uh, We'll maybe look at some of those connections uh, this morning. But together, these two psalms represent a sort of introduction to the uh, entire Psalter. And the psalm begins, uh, as you may have noticed, with a beatitude. What's a beatitude? It's a statement of blessing. Uh, The famous Beatitudes of Jesus open the Sermon on the Mount, but Beatitudes are found throughout Scripture. And it it strikes me, uh, incidentally, let me just point out that Psalm 2 ends with a Beatitude. Uh, Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So blessed... First of all, is the one, literally the man in Hebrew, but generically, the person, uh, is how Psalm 1 begins. Blessed are those who take refuge in him is how Psalm 2 ends, which tells us uh, something important, I think. Let me get to that in just a moment. But first, let me say two things I think that are surprising about this opening. First of all, uh, it's about us. It starts with human beings. It doesn't start with God. And you might think that when they were getting ready to launch the book of Psalms, which are so full of praise for God, uh, just running throughout and cries to God, that it would start with something like, worthy is the Lord or glorious is God. But no, it starts with us. It's a wisdom psalm. It wants to show us something fundamental about the choices we make in life and where they lead. Uh, Many of you are probably familiar uh, with Rick Warren's bestseller, The Purpose Driven Life. It kind of maybe has faded a little bit. I don't know if it's going to stand the test of time, but it sold 40 million copies. So it's got some. And I think if, if memory serves, the first line is, it's not about you. Well, guess what? In Psalm 1, the first line says, it is about you. It's about us. And, moreover, it's about our 
blessedness, our happiness. Again, you might think it would start out by saying holy is the one or virtuous is the one or some such thing. But it it says blessed is the one because God's ultimate aim for each of us is happiness. You, You do realize that, right? You do understand that it's ultimately about joy too deep for words, about pleasure and delight that are staggering and unimaginable, about that which almost every human being says they want more than anything else. I want to be happy. And this is the way, says the psalmist. God is not a cosmic killjoy. I don't know if you read the screw tape letters I did many, many years ago. And there's this famous line in there where screw tape the demon says, he's a hedonist at heart. Speaking of God, he's a hedonist, a pleasure lover. (laughs) The devil is the one who hates happiness. The devil is the one who sows dust and ashes. God's way is the way of life. It's the way to happiness. And, you know, all these, as, as Lewis says in that same passage, all these crosses and trials and, and pains and sorrows, those are just the foam on the shore. Out in the deep of his love, it is pleasure forevermore. So that's the beginning, the beatitude. Now let's think a little bit about the two ways that are laid out in this psalm. The psalm describes them or defines them literally as the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. That's at the, at the end in verse 6. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And just a word about those terms, righteous and wicked. They don't mean the righteous person is not the perfectly good, wonderful uh, unbelievably holy, etc., etc., and the wicked is not bad to the bone, as, as awful as you can imagine. The comparison is not between Mother Teresa and Adolf Hitler. The comparison is between the person who claims the covenant promises of God. That's what righteous means in the Old Testament. It's righteousness by faith from beginning to end. Abraham's the model. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's from Genesis 15, quoted by Paul in Romans uh, somewhere, 4, I think. (laughs) Romans 4. It's the righteousness of faith. It's the righteousness of one who says, I'm not righteous in myself, but you've promised me, Lord, and I say yes. And the wicked might be quite a nice person, a fine, upstanding member of the community. But their theme song is Frank Sinatra's old hit, I Did It My Way, My Way, My Way. Not God's way, my way. Another way to describe these two alternatives is by the biblical category of wisdom versus folly. The wise person versus the fool. 
And here, too, the contrast doesn't have much to do with uh, educational attainment or IQ. Uh, you can be a very wise person and never having gone beyond the eighth grade, and you can have a PhD and be the, the fool of the world. <laughs> it has to do once more with choices. And the essence of folly, as the Bible describes and defines it, is the failure, the failure to foresee where you're headed. The fool is the person who is fooled by appearances, who grabs for the immediate without concern for the long term. A fool is somebody who drives drunk or buzzed without thinking what might happen. A fool is a guy who tries to pick up a girl in a biker bar. Uh, a, a fool is a, is a girl who dates somebody with the nickname Killer, you know? There are, there are lots of kinds of folly uh, that surround us. It's not looking ahead and thinking ahead. This might not be a good idea, the choices I'm making. And the classic definition of folly, I think, for me, comes from a letter of John Newton. John Newton, um, an 18th century figure, early 19th century, pastor, hymn writer, we know, Amazing Grace, former slave trader, slave ship captain, converted and eventually a wonderful pastor with an incredible ministry of letter writing. And this is what Newton wrote in one of his letters. Um, I can't read that screen very well, but I have it here. Why do we account any persons foolish? A fool has no sound judgment. He's governed wholly by appearances and would prefer a fine coat to the title of a large estate. He pays no regard to consequences. A fool cannot reason, and therefore arguments are lost upon him. At one time, if tied with a straw, uh, he does not stir. At another time, perhaps, he can hardly be persuaded to move though the house were on fire. Are these the characteristics of a fool? Then there is no fool like the sinner who prefers uh, the toys of earth to the happiness of heaven who is held in bondage by the foolish customs of the world and is more afraid of the breath of man than of the wrath of God. So there are two, are two categories, the righteous and the wicked, the wise and the foolish. Now let's look at the contrast that the psalm spells out uh, involving these two people and their ways. We begin with contrasting choices. So, uh, verses 1 and 2. Um, Happy are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked or take the path that sinners tread or sit in the seat of scoffers. So clearly there's a progression here. Um, 
from walking to standing to sitting, that's often been pointed out. Uh, the advice or the counsel of the ungodly, of the wicked, the way in which they walk, their way of life, their path, and their attitude of scoffing or mocking. And you get, you get the image of a person sort of slowly being drawn in to the world's attitudes, values, behavior. Um, and, uh, you know, first they're kind of going along and then pretty soon they stop and they stand and they kind of listen and then before you know it, there they are, sitting in the middle. And the, the righteous resists that, rejects that, says no to that. It begins with something negative, with saying no to the world. This is uh, the psalmist equivalent of Paul's counsel in Romans 12. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And let me tell you, I don't think I need to tell you, it ain't easy because there is a tremendous pressure on us to conform. And to swim against the cultural stream is hard. I, I mean, it's easy for me to say this. I can stand up here and preach this. I'm retired. I don't have to go to work in an office environment where you don't dare say what you really think. I don't have to go to school where all around you, the peer pressure, especially as, as it is shaped by social influencers by social media is telling you this is how you ought to live, this is the way you need to go. And the Bible says, no, that's not the way. That's not the way of the righteous. So this is hard. And it's especially hard for the young, for our kids and grandkids. We need to pray for them. <laughs> um, we need to talk to them. We need to pray with them. To say no to the world's ways, and especially the world's attitudes. You know, th there are various kinds of unbelievers. Uh, some of them are angry unbelievers. I actually have hope for people like that because they're filled with a sense of the wrong, of injustice, uh, of the pain and suffering of the world, and they're mad at a God they don't believe in for allowing that. <laughs> then there's another kind of unbeliever who's sort of still open and questioning. I have a, a cousin who was, uh, for his whole career, he was a, a researcher into human consciousness, smarter than all get out, not much of a believer. Um, but he, he experimented, he was a, a scientist who experimented attempting to determine the origins of human consciousness. How did we start to think? When did we become self-aware? And he, I asked him, well, what's the consensus? And he says, well, ba basically there's two camps. There's the materialists and the mysterians. The materialists are people who think, well, it's just, you know, the laws of chance. Somehow the universe threw up this matter that became a living organism that evolved into consciousness. That's all. That's all there is to it. The Mysterians, 
are people who think we're never going to fully understand this or be able to explain it. And I said to him, well, which one are you? I'm a Mysterian, he said. And late in life, he started going to church <laughs> after a fashion. So there's hope for some unbelievers. But the one category of the wicked for whom I, I, I have very little hope are the mockers, the scoffers, people who just laugh at the idea of a God, who laugh at the idea of faith, of belief. It's for, it's for dims. We're the brights who know better. So the first choice is to say no to that and to say yes to something else. But the righteous delight in the law of the Lord and on his law they meditate day and night. Their delight is in the law of the Lord. And I wonder, uh, I don't know if you wonder, but I wonder, why does it say, why is it about a book? <laughs> it's basically talking about God's word. The righteous turn away from the world in order to embrace the word. Why doesn't it say God, simply God himself? Why the person, why not the person, why the book? And I think there are a couple of reasons for that. One is it's the book that helps us see where the way of the wicked leads. It helps us see through the pretense and the lies of the world's value system and behavior and attitude. But more than that, it's the book through whom we meet the person. As John said last week, lowercase w word of God is where we go to meet uppercase w word of God, the word made flesh. It is through the book that we come to know God as he is, Father, Son, and Spirit. And supremely, it is through the book that we come to Christ. You know, friends, I got, I got to break this news to you. You can go to Israel and look at all the ruins, and you'll, you're never going to meet Jesus there. He's not there anymore, except spiritually, <laughs> where two or three of his people may gather. If you want to meet Jesus, go to the book because that's where he lives. And that's where he waits to meet us. So we love, we delight in the law of the Lord, the book of the Lord, the word of God. Here's a second set of contrasting uh, choices, a second set of contrast, contrasting lives. The righteous are like trees planted by streams of water which yield their fruit in its season and their leaves do not wither. In all that they do, they prosper. What a beautiful image, isn't it? And we've chosen that image for all the Psalms, uh, the tree planted by streams of water. It's really, uh, it's great and evocative. The problem is it, it's not a fruit tree. And the Psalmist is talking about fruit trees because it's not only an image or symbol of vitality, it's a symbol of fruitfulness of productivity. These are lives, lives steeped in the word that bear fruit, the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, the ripe life of, of 
holiness and of influence that is such an attractive thing where we find it. And they keep bearing fruit. Uh, in the Middle East, there's only life where there's water. I remember seeing once a, a satellite image of North Africa and the whole thing all the way across from west to east was one vast sea of brown with nothing living in it, except for way over in the right-hand corner there was a ribbon of green going up and down from south to north. It was the Nile, of course, a tree planted by streams of never-failing water that is alive and fruitful. Listen to these words from Psalm 92. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. I love that promise. <laughs> Even when our bodies begin to wear out and wither and dry up, which they do, incidentally, we can still be full of sap and green and bearing this fruit for the kingdom. But now the contrast. The wicked, the ungodly, are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. <clears throat> you can picture that, can't you? In terms of the psalmist, <coughs> it involved uh, the, the threshing of the grain in the harvest. They would gather the grain from the field, gather it into sheaves, carry the sheaves together to the threshing floor, which was usually on top of a bare hill. Uh, they'd beat the grain with flails, or maybe they'd drive a sledge over it to break it up. And then on a windy day, they'd take winnowing forks and they'd toss it in the air. And the good grain would fall back to the threshing floor and the chaff would be... Kind of like, there's a modern analogy. If you've ever seen a wheat harvest, the big combine going along over the field and blowing out the back end, the chaff, as the grain is gathered into the bin. The way of the wicked is a, is a dead end. It's a, it's a road, a way of life that leads nowhere and to nothingness in the end. Those are the alternatives. Those are the choices. And that, of course, is how the psalm concludes. The contrasting ends of the righteous and the wicked. I got a quote from Jeremiah. We'll just skip that and go right to the end. <clears throat> Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The context, of course, is the judgment. What? There's a judgment? <laughs> News to the world. Newsflash. There is a judgment. There is a day when every life will be evaluated. 
and the righteous will stand. Those are blessed who take refuge in the Lord. And the wicked will perish. This is serious stuff, isn't it? But here's the thing, and this is the note on which I want to end. The Lord knows your way, and it's a way that leads to good. And whatever you may be experiencing now in terms of pain or suffering, even if it's terminal, it's not the end. For the Lord knows your way, and it ultimately leads to happiness. And here's how to lay hold on that and how to let it grow and well up within you and sustain you from day to day. Because I don't, I don't know if you picked up on this. There's one little phrase I skipped so far. It's the one thing that the righteous do. So we're told about their choices, how they turn away from this and they turn to the, the other and how they're their lives are rich and, and flourishing and fruitful and how the Lord knows their way and they will stand in the day of judgment. But one thing they do, says the psalmist, on his word they meditate day and night. They meditate day and night on the word. And the word that the psalmist use there, uses there is the Hebrew word hagah, which is used in Isaiah Uh, chapter 31, to describe the way a lion gnaws at and growls over the bone that they're chewing on. As a lion or young lion growls over his prey, so the Lord of hosts will come down to fight on Mount Zion and on its hill. Listen to how uh, Eugene Peterson translates the opening verses of Psalm 1, where he picks up on this from the message how well God must like you. You don't walk in the ruts of those blind as bats. You don't stand with the good-for-nothings. You don't take your seat among the know-it-alls. Instead, you thrill to God's word and you chew on Scripture day and night. That's how it works. Because as we, we, we don't just read a little bit and, and then move on, as we internalize Scripture, as we inhabit the world of the Bible, as we meditate on and memorize and think about and read, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest, is the way an old prayer puts it. The Spirit uses the Word to form Christ in us. This is why we do this. Not only because of where the word leads, it leads us to God, it leads us to the Lord, but because of what it does to us and how it changes us, how it works on us. And ultimately, because this is the way to happiness. Let's pray together. I'd like to close with a prayer from a colic from the Book of Common Prayer. It was a prayer I read this morning. It's the colic for today, the sixth Sunday after Trinity. O God, who has prepared for those who love you such good things as pass our understanding, 
pour into our hearts such love toward you that we, loving you above all things, may obtain your promises which exceed all that we can desire. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.